Let's grab our Bibles, let's open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, as we make progress in our start of uh, this uh, longest book of the New Testament, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. As you're turning to chapter 3, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream from home or wherever you are on a mobile device. It's God's Word and it's on its way to you as we read and preach We do welcome anyone watching at home or later on to be with us on Sunday morning. We'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, translation from the Greek. This is the word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ereturia, and Traconius, and Lysantius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were eager, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not unworthy, I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, 
and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. This is uh, the introduction to one of the greatest preachers to walk the earth. John the Baptist, he doesn't hold back. We could call him both barrels, John the Baptist. Uh, There are few preachers that have such boldness and such tenacity. John Knox was one of them. But even here in early America, there was a 19th century Methodist preacher, so says Phil Riken, named Peter Cartwright, who once had the opportunity to preach to Andrew Jackson. Before the service, he was warned not to say anything out of line. So when Cartwright got up to preach, he said, I understand Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. (laughs) Peter Cartwright. The story says the congregation was shocked, but afterwards the president shook Cartwright's hand and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. He recognized the boldness and authority and courage in that preacher. John the Baptist, even more so. We're told the times in which he preached, but his preaching came out with a bluntness to the Jews who came out to hear him. A bluntness that we sometimes overlook. Perhaps we need to hear it in our own language. Again, Philip Ryken, a great preacher of our day, tries to put uh, John the Baptist's language into uh, modern evangelical language. As though John the Baptist might appear in this pulpit and he might say this. You know what people you all are? You're a bunch of hypocrites. You go to church on Sunday And then you forget about God the rest of the week. You're living a double life. You say that you belong to God, then you secretly go and indulge in all kinds of sinful pleasures. You live in your nice big homes and drive around in your fancy cars, but you never do anything to help the poor. You snakes. Do you really think that God is going to save you just because you've been baptized and belong to an evangelical church? Listen, unless you turn away from your sins, You're going straight to hell. A paraphrase of John the Baptist for religious people of today. Ouch. Unabashed preaching of the word of God, the truth of God, not bullying, not terrorizing, not manipulating, but unabashed presenting of the facts of the word of God. It's what John was about. And indeed, he was called to have a very specific prophetic ministry and to bring the word of God to God's people who had strayed and were in disarray and were, in many cases, backslidden. John speaks as a prophet filled with the Holy Spirit. Not every preacher will sound like that. But God's word is true. In the lips of John the Baptist, even as we read and preach it today. This is an important introduction to what Jesus came to do. 
John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way. To prepare the way of the Lord. Not just historically and chronologically, but spiritually. To get people ready to receive their Messiah, to be saved. And to highlight what is the first step of anyone's salvation. It is repentance. Repentance. The turning from self and sin to the Lord. It's a work of God's grace even. So John the Baptist embodies that. And it's a big deal. Let's take a look at how he is introduced and what we can learn from uh, the scene that is set here and then from his message and then from his detailed Q&A about repentance. Let's take it under those three headings. The big, the big part of the scene that's set and then the message itself and the detailed applications John gives. I should ask it as a question. What is the biggest part of the scene here as Luke tells the story? Between verses 1 to 6, he sets it up. What's, what's the big point of those first few verses? He starts with a cast of historical characters. And we can see he names uh, six men of history who were well known in the time. And archaeology and historical documents know these people. Pilate, the governor of Judea, he served from 26 to 36 AD. So right as Jesus was doing his public ministry until after the resurrection, Pilate, the governor of Judea in Jerusalem. There was Herod Antipas. There's several Herods. Uh, This Herod was son of Herod the Great, and he was great in wickedness, by the way. He built a lot of stuff, so people called him great, but we know his spiritual record. Uh, It was a wreck. Herod the Great was so wicked. It was Herod the Great who ordered the death of the babies in Bethlehem. This is his son, who equally, not equally, but it was about as wicked, Uh, He was called a tetrarch because the area had been divided into regions. And a tetrarch was a ruler over one of four regions. And here we have just three of the tetrarchs named Herod. His brother Philip was another tetrarch. And Lysanias, uh, he was another tetrarch. And, And we know well from history because the phrase not only meant specifically ruler of a fourth, but because of these guys and the the record of such guys... Tetrarch became the equivalent of some petty prince, some leader of a banana republic, someone who's just not great, the Tetrarchs. But in addition to those political leaders that Luke lists, and he gives us historical uh, setting, he mentions two that were high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, we know from our Bibles, only one man can be high priest at a time. So what's going on here? Well, Annas was high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, and then he retired. But he seemed to have been the puppet master of the high priests. Who succeeded him? But his sons. He had five sons. And in the course of three or four years, each one took a turn. And finally, in AD 18, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, became high priest. So... Who can imagine what shenanigans were going on in that office? And we know Annas was still calling the shots because when Jesus was arrested at the uh, time leading up to Good Friday, Jesus was brought first to him, the retired high priest, before Caiaphas and the council was called. 
What do all these men have in common besides their fame? They all have in common their wickedness. What is Luke telling us? He's telling us two things about this historical setting. He's telling us that the things he's talking about happened in time and space. They are historic and accurate. John the Baptist began when these things were going on, when these people were in place. You can check it out. Luke started the gospel in chapter 1 saying basically the same thing. This is a historical report. My friends, the Bible is not once upon a time as in a myth or a fairy tale. In history, John the Baptist did these things. But Luke is also telling us by the people he names how bad the times were, how depraved things were. Rome ruled, and it ruled not only the Mediterranean world, but it actually had its fingers into the, uh, to the, the high priestly connections and, and to the people of Israel. They didn't have self-rule in the way they once did. The state of the region and the state of religion were both poor. So, he lists all those big names. Is that the big thing? Many people think the big thing is the coming of John the Baptist. Well, let me tell you this. The biggest part of the scene is not just the coming of John the Baptist. It is very specifically the coming of the word of God. Hear me now. The coming of the word of God. The fact that God's word came again to his people is the big news here. That's what you underline, not just... Oh, John the Baptist, he's kind of cool. The phrase that's the climax here is in this verse 2. Verses 1 and 2 have a lot of phrases. But where's the verb? Where's the climax? After talking about all these names and everybody's listening and nodding their head and rubbing their chin. Yes, we know these people. It says, during these times, the word of God came. And you might be wondering, what's the big deal? The word of God came a lot. Well, it hadn't come for 400 years. 400 years. This area of North America was was just being uh, settled and colonized by Westerners coming to live among the Native Americans 400 years ago. There was no Declaration of Independence. There was no George Washington, no Supreme Court, no Congress. No United States Navy, nothing 400 years ago. Can we imagine the scope of 400 years? For 400 years from the close of the Old Testament to the coming of John the Baptist and his words as a prophet of God, there had been a famine, as it were, of the word of God. No prophet, no fresh revelation from God. They had the scriptures and they read them. They sang the Psalms. They read the prophecies and prayed over them. But it had been quiet for 400 years. So what should create goosebumps for expectant Jews and hopeful Gentiles is that phrase. The word of God came. What a privilege it is to hear the word of God with regularity in its fullness, in its completeness. We have it written down. You can each have a copy of it. 
And the Holy Spirit is at work among teachers, preachers, and believers to impress it to our hearts and minds. The big thing here is the coming of the Word of God. Dale Ralph Davis says, The text assumes here there is scarcely anything more vital and more important than the public address of God's Word to His people. Yes, John the Baptist is hereby portrayed as an Old Testament prophet. That's that's how the prophets were described, whether you've got Samuel or Elijah, Elisha or others. The word of the Lord came to the person. Whoever it came to was the prophet with the word of God. And he was who he was because the word of God had come to him. So this does set apart John the Baptist. He is worthy of acclaim. And we know, too, the prophecy from chapter 1 of Luke as people sang about his coming, uh, verses uh, 15, 16, and 70, that John the Baptist himself would be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? This child filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. So his arrival is going to be exciting, but it's the coming of the Word of God. And John is who he is because of the Word of God, because of the Holy Spirit. Don't make more of the man than of the word of God. I hope we catch on to that. And we know that it was his faithfulness to the word of God that cost John dearly. Let me comment on it now because we won't later on. The closing verses today, 18, 19, and 20, summarize what John's life was. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him. Herod puts John the Baptist in jail. Not immediately. John will interact with Jesus a little bit. John's going to baptize Jesus in just a minute when we get to that passage. But eventually he's in jail because of his faithfulness to the word. John the Baptist told Herod to his face, what you're doing with that woman is wrong. It's a sin to have your brother's wife. And so the preaching brought an impact and Herod put him in jail and would later behead John the Baptist. The coming of the word of God, it's costly. But that's the big deal here. It's God's word that has come. So let's look at what the word says in the mouth of this messenger, John the Baptist. Now we know that if you were reading the gospel of Matthew or I think Mark, um, at least Matthew, were told several things about John the Baptist. What he wore, he had that kind of unique fashion. And what he ate, he ate bugs and stuff in the wilderness. John mentions all those things, but not Luke. Luke says the word came to John the Baptist and he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of, of sins. There's no description, there's no narrative, there's no sidebar, there's no photo with captions in Luke. He goes straight to the message. John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We'll unpack that carefully under the next major heading. But we use basically calling people to repent and then be baptized. This messenger was fulfilling what Isaiah spoke about. So Luke tells us about John the Baptist by quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And we can go back and take a look. 
Isaiah chapter 40 is a, a, is a famous, well-known passage. We, we've often uh, read parts of it for the comfort it brings. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, it begins. But Luke is quoting verses 3, 4, and 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And verse 5 from Isaiah. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist brings the word of God from the mouth of God. And what's interesting here, when Luke is quoting Isaiah, and he's doing verse six from verse five from Isaiah 40, and it's verse six now in the New Testament, he changes a word. Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and perhaps the Septuagint had the change already in it. He says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Whereas Isaiah talked about the glory of God being revealed, all flesh shall see it, the glory of God together. What is the glory of God but the Savior Jesus Christ, the salvation he brings? So Jesus, who will be the fulfillment of Isaiah's message, is identified by the word salvation. And that's what John the Baptist was here to do, to preach repentance, to prepare the way so people could receive the Savior. And it's interesting, as we study Luke, I hope you'll make some specific notes because Luke, in in addition to being an inspired author of Scripture, God the author, Luke the penman, Luke has is, is called by God to present several things the other Gospels don't seem to highlight. The other Gospels don't quote all those verses from Isaiah, but Luke does, because he's concerned about the impact of the messenger. And it's Luke alone of the Gospels that quotes that final verse that says, all flesh shall see. What is Luke hinting at? Well, we'll find out as we go along. Luke has a particular care for those Gentiles as well as the Jews. All flesh shall see. Luke has a particular care for the poor. And we'll see that in the way that he reports what Jesus said and did. Now, when it says all flesh shall see the salvation of God, we have to be careful. This isn't teaching universalism. This isn't saying everyone's saved. What does it mean? The scholar Michael Wilcox says, there is no kind of person the gospel cannot reach. No boundary it cannot cross. Luke is not saying that everyone will be saved, but that anyone can be saved. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. The messenger cried, Well, let's dig a little deeper. What does he mean by baptism for repentance? If I go wash out at one of John the Baptist's meetings, I'm going to be saved? What's all this about? Washing and baptism is immersing in water, splashing around out there, going under the water. People were going out to John, getting fully wet and then coming back. What does this mean? And why call it a baptism of repentance? 
whatever it is, it begins with repentance. You don't get wet first. John was calling people to repent and then be baptized in the Jordan River. Verse 7, he gives a specific rebuke to those who came just to get washed, just to cover their bases. We don't know what's going on, but if this guy's a prophet of God, I'm going to go get wet. I'm going to at least get to church once a year on Christmas and Easter. I'm just going to do that so I'm good. I cover my bases. I hedge my bets. No, the water doesn't matter unless you've repented. See, John calls him out in verse 7. He says to the crowds that came out to be baptized. So the people that are lining up to get wet. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's calling out hypocrites. It's a rebuke uh, as, as though you were a snake just fleeing from the fire. You have a sense that there's some danger, so you're fleeing from the danger just to get wet here. We know that Luke says John the Baptist was here preaching to multitudes. There were great crowds. One of the gospel writers said all Jerusalem went out to see him. The crowds were that huge. The gospel of Matthew specifies that in the crowd were Pharisees and Sadducees. We know Jesus would later on call those Jewish leaders um, snakes. Woe to you. John the Baptist was preaching to whoever it applied, whoever was a hypocrite in the crowd. He was saying, don't just think that you can flee the fire, get wet, and you're good. He's calling out their hypocrisy. It says, uh, the southern preacher Dale Davis says, don't play the Abraham card. Don't say, oh, I'm a child of Abraham. I don't have to repent. I'll get wet, but I don't have to repent. Because John goes on to say this, verse 8 and 9. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to say, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Snakes, sons of Abraham, John in his preaching, is trying to open the eyes of these hypocrites. Going through the motions is not enough. Trusting in your status as Jewish is not enough. There's even an interesting play on words between stones and children. In, in the original Aramaic, the words for children and stones were very similar. So he's just kind of like getting a dig in. Don't claim to be this when God can make that the same as you. He was pointing to the fact for real repentance. He's talking about something being necessary. Don't presume, but consider this call to repentance. It is necessary that you repent. And it's urgent. Verse 9 says the axe is already poised. Hasn't chopped down yet, but it's coming. God will deal severely with the Jews who ignored their Messiah. With anyone who ignores Jesus even today. 
Repentance comes first, but then this baptism is talked about. It's the immersing or dipping in water. It was a sign that you were repentant, that you were willing to forsake your sins and get washed, as it were. You went into the Jordan and were dipped and you came out. This is John's baptism. This is not yet Christian believer's baptism. There's two different baptisms in the New Testament. This is first. A baptism for repentance. And John was simply taking what the Jews had available to them when a Gentile wanted to be converted. We know from certain synagogues, even the synagogue in Capernaum, that there was a large tank for water for ceremonial washing. It could be used when needed, when a Jew uh, was unclean and needed to go through a ceremonial washing. But most commonly it was used when a Gentile convert became a God-fearer or was circumcised and became a Jew. He would have to go through the ritual of washing in that tank. If you were a proselyte, if you had been a new convert from the Jews, you had to wash in the tank and all the Jews would watch you get clean. So for John the Baptist to preach to the Jews who gathered to him, you guys... Get in the tank and get clean. Repent and get washed. It was a real shock to many that he would call them to be baptized. But as it were, it was a sign of of some sort of the genuineness of your repentance. You're going to claim this and you can do this. Even today, Christian baptism, when we believe and are baptized, is a sign that we remember that transitionary step. But we do well to remember what one preacher has said. There is no forgiveness without repentance, and the act of repentance and the act of baptism do not have the power to take away our sins. Forgiveness only comes through Christ and his cross, not the religious act. So let's be clear. We know that. The thief on the cross, Jesus told him point blank, you'll be with me in paradise. Because you believe. We're saved by faith through grace. But the one who saves us commands us to repent, believe, be baptized. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Jesus called his disciples to be baptized. Here John the Baptist was calling people to repent. And as an outward sign of it to be washed. And he taught not only repentance before this washing. But if you've gone through this, even that's not enough. You need to have fruit. Not just dampness. As you get up from the waters, as you go back into your life, you need to have fruit. What do we mean by saying fruit? It's an analogy. They don't have to go to the store and buy fruit. But it means just as a tree, if it's healthy, a fruit tree will grow apples or bananas or peaches. Someone who's truly repented and is right with God will have signs growing in their lives. Like fruit on a tree will be things in your life that confirm God is at work in your heart. So John the Baptist said this very plainly to those who were coming. He said this in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And it's plural there because he's talking to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
And the people followed up and asked. Do you see in verse 10, the people asked, the people that really want to, to follow through, the people that are hungering for this truth to, to work in their lives, they asked John, tell me more, tell me more. What shall we do in verse 10? When the word of God brings conviction to someone, that's often what you hear. After a sermon, it's nice to say, oh, that was great. That was interesting. I like that story about Andrew Jackson. That was pretty cool. But when the word is at work on you, you're thinking and praying, what must I now do? So they came to John. And very briefly, let's take a look at the three examples he addresses here. He talks to different people. Verse 11, he's talking really to everyone when he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has one or none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. That's addressed broadly to all sorts of people that were asking him questions. What does he say? A tunic, that was your main garment. Some people would have an inner tunic and an outer tunic. I don't know if we think of an undershirt and an outer shirt or a, a shirt and a jacket. We, you know, we know fashions have layers. The more layers you are, usually the more wealthy you are. Certainly in the ancient world. Can you imagine someone who had no tunic? He's talking about the very poor, the most needy. They don't even have a tunic. If you've got more than one, do something about it. Do something about that. The first example, he talks about food and clothing. If you have food and someone has no food, don't just pray for them. Do something about it. That's what John is saying. He can convict of sin and he can push us to fruitfulness with these words of truth. Now, verses 12 and 13, those are directed in answer to these tax collectors, these agents. Typically, the Romans, uh, when they ruled, they, they sold license to collect taxes for them. We need this much tax. You want the job, you get us what we owe, and you can get more for yourself. And so they, they gave someone permission to be a tax collector. Sometimes uh, uh, they would hire, the tax collector would hire agents among the Jews because they would speak Aramaic and they'd know the people. We know Levi, one of the disciples, was first a tax collector. Uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. These agents, these little collectors, debt collectors, give me your tax and what I want, and they'd add to it. They were often unjust. They were not liked, even though they were fellow Jews. They come, they've repented. They say, what do we do now? Notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, you can't work for the government. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that to the soldiers. You better lay down your arms and go work somewhere else. He says... To the tax agents, collect fairly what's due. He says to the soldiers in verse 14, don't abuse your authority. Be content with your wages. Overall, he is saying, in whatever calling God has called you to do, live in a transformed way. Do it well. Do it justly. Because God is watching you. Examine your behavior. Are you fruitful? As Dale Davis said, repentance is not seen in your doing some extraordinary feat, but in your living ordinary lives in a transformed way. Repentance is a way of life right where you are. 
In the Middle Ages, they misunderstood a lot of that. Someone got right with God and they wanted to join a nunnery or a monastery or take vows and, 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 and leave the community. I'm so thankful for the Protestant Reformation kind of correcting some of those external practices. The validity of every calling. If you're a milkmaid, be a milkmaid to the glory of God. If you're working for the government or if you're a soldier, behave justly. And all of this because John was teaching there was a judgment coming. There was a Lord coming. Will you be ready for the Lord? We know that messianic expectations were in the air. We're told that in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. They see him as God's working with him and through him. Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? So John answers them all. And my guess is he had to do this often. No, I'm not. The one who's coming is mightier than I. The one who is coming is mightier than I. And he gives two proofs. The Messiah is greater than me. First, I'm I'm so inferior, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. And that made some sense in the ancient world where everyone wore sandals. And the rabbis taught, this was very interesting, the rabbis taught that if you had a slave, if you're the master, you can't make your slave grovel in the dirt just to untie your sandal. The rabbis drew a line. If you're Jewish and you happen to have a servant in your home, don't make him untie your sandals. That's just too much to ask. Kick off your own shoes. So what does John do? He takes that well-known saying. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that for the master. The superiority of the one coming is, is huge. And John also draws the contrast by saying, I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Hello? John's just talking about washing and repenting. Jesus, when he comes... He's going to light you on fire. The Holy Spirit of God will indwell you. You will be born again. And John couldn't wait to point to Jesus as he does and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not the Messiah. He's coming and you can't believe how much greater he is. And John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. They're similar in age. They're born about six months apart. In the next passage, Jesus will come to be baptized. We'll see them interact. But they are not equals. John the Baptist, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets who points to Christ, says Christ is mightier. And that message is still true in our world. As famous as some preacher might be, some theologian might be, as big as some church might be, Christ is Lord. It's Christ whom we worship and adore. Are you ready for the Lord? Verse 17 gives us a harvest illustration to remind us that when this mighty one comes, he's going to harvest. He's going to harvest. That's why we need to prepare the way of the Lord. That's why we need to repent. He comes to gather in. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand. Winnowing fork? That's a farmer's implement, right? The winnowing fork? That's what they used to to just take piles of what was harvested, the grain, the wheat, and it just lumps in, in messy lumps. And you take the fork, you jam it, you toss it up in the breeze, and you keep doing that till it falls and the, the husk cracks and eventually the grain will fall and the chaff, which is lighter, will blow over and land over there. So you keep working this pile until the chaff is blown away and separated and all you have is wheat that's left. This is done on the threshing floor with that fork. That's what the Lord's coming to do to the people of Israel, to the world. He's going to harvest But there are two sides to the harvest, are there not? His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather in the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus came not only to gather, but to bring judgment eventually. Both purposes. The coming of Jesus would divide humanity for those who were for him, those who were against him, those that belonged to him, those he would say, depart from me, I never knew you. He comes to gather in and he comes for judgment. John the Baptist was deadly serious about this. Isn't that evident? Being called to be a prophet, he himself raised in a godly home, but then called of God to this ministry, living in the wilderness, knowing how much was put on his shoulders to prepare the way of the Lord to preach to these people. If I don't tell it like it is, they will not be ready to be gathered in. They will most likely face judgment. You will go to hell if you are not ready and right with Jesus. That's what John is saying. There's several things I need to say in conclusion to this morning's sermon. I call them applications or exhortations, just so we're clear, some some important takeaways in case you missed them. They've already been said. The first is this. God's word is the biggest factor in this passage. God's word, not just this cool guy, John the Baptist, as a kid. I love Sunday school. They'd show this guy dressed in goofiness with a locust in his hand, ready to pop it in his mouth. John the Baptist was a character. But what we see is the word of God at work here. Animating John, coming to his people. It's called good news. God's word is the biggest factor here. And let me just point out what what we should make of that. It comes in a day when everybody on on the scene, remember those six names at the beginning? Everybody's pretty evil, pretty self-serving, not really working for the Lord or the Messiah. They're living for themselves. In the midst of that wickedness, that depravity, that confusion, that brokenness, God's word comes and turns it around. It's amazing what God's word does. As J.C. Ryle said, never despair about the cause of truth. When God's truth comes, it will accomplish what he sent it to do. And God's word has the power to change hearts and minds. You can pray for any family member, any co-worker, for the Lord to change their heart. 
Even, even the, 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 the licentious one or the, the antagonistic one, the downright mean one with the foul mouth and he's got that gaze. You can pray for him because the power of God could change him. We can pray for the United States of America even if we don't like this leader or that leader because God in his mercy can change this land. It's in his power. Despite the leaders of history, God's word accomplishes what he sets out to do it. Isaiah said this day would come and it came. John the Baptist came. Jesus came. And the gates of salvation are open wide. Wherever this gospel is preached, God's word is the big player on the scene. But that same word tells us Godly repentance and faith must bear fruit. You need to repent and believe. If you haven't done that, if, if you say, I'm having trouble getting this Christian life going. I, I don't feel I know God. I don't feel he knows me. It, it feels like there's a wall there still. I, I don't understand you're joining the Lord yet. That's, that's okay. Seeking is great. But the hurdle might be you're trying to push Jesus into your heart when you haven't gotten rid of all the junk. You still want to run your own life. You still don't mind your sins. You need to repent of self and sin and say, Lord, I believe. Save me. Be my Lord and Savior. Rule in my heart. Move in. Have any room in the house. Repent and believe. And as this text emphasizes so clearly, Make it real repentance and real faith that bears fruit. If you don't see the fruit, get back to the root. Get back to the repentance. Get back to the faith. If you believe, if you've repented, look for the fruit. Cultivate it. Pray about it. Just as those who had repented came and asked John, what shall I do? Maybe you're at the point where you say, I'm not seeing the fruit. I, I feel I'm, I'm not as fruitful as I could be. Come and talk to one of the elders. Talk to a mature Christian woman or mature Christian man. And, and do what the Lord sets up the local church to do. Help one another pursue godliness. Bear fruit. Remember the warning to those snakes. You can't just get wet and think you're safe. The final word is, is really that phrase from verse 18 near the end of our passage. And, and don't you love how it describes John the Baptist's preaching? So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. <laughs> this guy yelling at everybody, that's good news? Yes, it is good news. It's good news to know the trouble's coming. It's good news to know how to escape the trouble. I had some big plans for this afternoon. But I heard in the forecast there might be some rain. So I'm being careful. I'm looking at what's coming so I can plan accordingly. God's word tells us. God will not welcome sinners who cling to their sin. Who are fruitless in the things of God. He does welcome them for salvation. But they will not go into glory without Christ washing and cleansing them. There's good news that you can be saved. You can be redeemed. You can become a child of God. That's where John is pointing us. Repentance, as one guy said, is the on-ramp to salvation. Repent, 
and believe in Jesus. This is good news. Even when the preacher has to yell at a president of the United States, he told him the truth. Don't let the message cause you to take offense that you miss the opportunity to be done with your guilt and shame. To step away from your sin with the power of God's word at work in you. This is good news. Be thankful for John the Baptist. Pray for more preachers on the caliber of John the Baptist. Oh, does our land need that or not? That God's word would go out with power and compassion. May those of us who have heard God's word do what we can to tell others. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your scripture, for Luke's gospel, for this historical record so carefully made, explaining John the Baptist to us, showing us the power of God's word to make a difference in the world. Sending your son, the very word of God, to procure our salvation on the cross. Lord, we repent, but he saves. We have faith, but he is the object of our faith. He is our righteousness, our glory, our joy. Lord, may many come to faith in Christ and cling to him by your grace this day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.